Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's episode, we're going to explore the question whether John Dillinger ever came through Southwest Michigan. There's a lot of possibility that he did, but not a lot of hard evidence that ties him to Southwest Michigan. But I'm going to present his timeline and his story and show you a few connections to Southwest Michigan in terms of the investigation to hunt him down. And there's also a story of him being in Michigan, as well as some of the known evidence of him being in Michigan. So come along and join me. We're going to explore this interesting story of the history of John Dillinger. Now, during the 1930s, there was the Great Depression, and many Americans feeling nearly helpless against the forces that they didn't understand was going on in the economy. They tended to make heroes of outlaws, and especially those that took what they wanted at gunpoint. They were sort of a folk hero of the time period. And of all the lurid desperados, one man, John Herbert Dillinger, came to evoke the gangster era that stirred the mass emotions to a degree rarely seen before in the country. Now, Dillinger, whose name once dominated the headlines, was a notorious and vicious thief. From September 1933 through July 1934, he and his violent gang terrorized the Midwest killing 10 men, wounding seven others, robbing banks and police arsenals, and staging three different jailbreaks, and killing a sheriff during one of those events and wounding two guards in another. So you can see that he was certainly wanted by law enforcement during his time. Let's explore who he was. John Herbert Dillinger was born June 22, 1903, in the Oak Hill section of Indianapolis, which was a middle-class residential neighborhood. Now, his father was a hard-working grocer, and he raised him in an atmosphere of disciplinary extremes. He was harsh and quite repressive of the young man on several occasions, but generous and permissive on others. John's mother died when he was just three years old, and when his father remarried when he was nine years old, John resented his new stepmother. In his adolescence, the flaws of his bewildering personality became evident, and he was frequently in trouble. Finally, he quit school, and he got a job in a machine shop in Indianapolis. Now, although Quite intelligent and a good worker, he soon became bored and often stayed out all night. His father worried about the temptations of the city and that they would be corrupting his teenage son, sold his property in Indianapolis, and moved his family to a farm near Mooresville, Indiana. John, however, reacted quite poorly to this move and was really no better in his rural life than he was when he lived in the city. And he soon began to run wild again in this rural area. Now, a break happened eventually with his father when trouble with the law, which started with an auto theft, led him to enlist in the U.S. Navy. So John enlisted in the U.S. Navy to negate the charges from the auto theft. And he soon got into trouble and deserted his ship when it was docked in Boston. 
He returned to Mooresville, Indiana, and then he married 16-year-old Beryl Hovius in 1924. The dazzling dream of bright lights and excitement led the newlyweds to Indianapolis. Dillinger had no luck finding work in the city, and so he joined the town pool shark, a man by the name of Ed Singleton, in his search for easy money. And in their first attempt, they tried to rob a Mooresville grocer, but were quickly apprehended. Singleton pleaded not guilty, and he stood trial, and he was sentenced to two years in prison. Dillinger followed his father's advice, and he confessed to the crime and was convicted of assault and battery with intent to rob and conspiracy to commit a felony, and he received joint sentences of 2 to 14 years and 10 to 20 years in the Indiana State Prison. Now, he was pretty stunned by this harsh sentence and the fact that he had confessed, whereas the other guy, Ed Singleton, had pled not guilty and got a lesser charge. So Dillinger became a tortured and bitter man when he was in prison. Now, his period of infamy began in May of 1933 when, on May 10th, he was paroled from prison after serving eight and a half years of his sentence. Almost immediately, Dillinger robbed a bank in Bluffton, Ohio. The Dayton police arrested him on September 22nd, and he was lodged in the county jail in Lima, Ohio, to await trial. So you see that he's all over Indiana. He's in Ohio, and his career in crime would span several other states following this. And while they were frisking Dillinger, the Lima police found a document while he was in the Lima, Ohio jail that seemed to be a plan for a prison break. But the prisoner denied any knowledge of the plan. So four days later, using the same plans, eight of Dillinger's friends escaped from the Indiana State Prison using shotguns and rifles that had been smuggled into their cells. And during their escape, they shot two guards. So on October 12th, three of the escaped prisoners and a parolee from the same prison showed up at the Lima jail in search of Dillinger, where he was incarcerated. And they told the sheriff that they'd come to return Dillinger to the Indiana State Prison for violation of parole. When the sheriff asked to see their credentials, one of the men pulled a gun and shot the sheriff and beat him into unconsciousness. Then, taking the keys to the jail, the bandits freed Dillinger, locked the sheriff's wife and a deputy in a cell, and left the sheriff to die on the floor and made their getaway with Dillinger. So although none of these men had violated a federal law at this point, the FBI's assistance was requested from the Ohio State Police as well as the Indiana State Police, in identifying and locating the criminals. So the four men were identified as Harry Pierpoint, Russell Clark, Charles Mackley, and Harry Copeland. And their fingerprint cards in the FBI Identification Division were flagged with red metal tags indicating that they were wanted. So meanwhile, Dillinger and his gang pulled off several bank robberies. They had plundered the police arsenals at Auburn, Indiana, and also in Peru, Indiana, and they stole several machine guns and rifles and revolvers and a quantity of ammunition and several bulletproof vests. On December 14th, John Hamilton, a Dillinger gang member, 
shot and killed a police detective in Chicago. A month later, the Dillinger gang killed a police officer during the robbery of the First National Bank in East Chicago, Indiana. So you can see that these places are not very far from Southwest Michigan. But I'll continue. The gang then made their way to Florida and subsequently to Tucson, Arizona, where on January 23, 1934, a fire broke out in the hotel where Clark and Mackley, two of his gang members, were hiding under assumed names. The firemen that attended the fire recognized the men from their photographs, and they contacted the local police who arrested them. And they also arrested Dillinger and Harry Pierpoint in the same arrest. They also seized three Thompson submachine guns, two Winchester rifles that were mounted as machine guns, and five bulletproof vests, and more than $25,000 in cash, part of it from the East Chicago robbery. So Dillinger was sequestered in the county jail in Crown Point, Indiana, to await trial for the murder of the East Chicago police officer. And authorities boasted that the jail was escape-proof. But on January 3rd, 1934, Dillinger managed to escape. And how he did it was he cowed the guards with what he claimed was a wooden gun he had whittled. And he forced them to open the jail cell and then grabbed two machine guns and locked up the guards and several trustees. And then he fled the scene. So essentially, he carved out a wooden handgun while he was in his cell. And then he pulled it on the guards who believed it to be a gun. And they unlocked the cell doors for him. And then he quickly grabbed two machine guns and put them all into the cage and left. So that's how he got out of jail over in Crown Point, Indiana. So that was his second escape from jail. Now, the Bureau began to actively hunt for John Dillinger at this point. What resulted in the, the Federal Bureau of Investigation getting involved in the hunt for John Dillinger was that he made a costly mistake. He stole the sheriff's car and he drove it across the Indiana-Illinois line when he headed for Chicago. And by doing that, he had violated the National Motor Vehicle Theft Act, and which made it now a federal offense to transport a stolen motor vehicle across the state line. So the law enforcement were able at this point to fully engage the Federal Bureau of Investigation in the manhunt for John Dillinger. A federal complaint was sworn charging Dillinger with the theft and the interstate transportation of the sheriff's car, which was recovered in Chicago. After that, the grand jury returned an indictment and the FBI became actively involved in the nationwide search for John Dillinger. Had he not stolen that car, he probably would have gotten away for a much longer period of time because he was able to cross state lines and evade state law enforcement. So it's kind of an interesting turn of event. So the story continues while he was in Chicago after he'd stolen the car. Pierpoint, Mackley, and Clark were returned to Ohio and they were convicted of murder of the Lima Sheriff. Pierpoint and Mackley were sentenced to death and Clark was sentenced to life imprisonment. In an escape attempt over there, Mackley was killed and Pierpoint was wounded, and a month later, Pierpoint had recovered sufficiently, and he was executed based on his sentence. So in Chicago, Dillinger joined his girlfriend, Evelyn Frechette, and they proceeded up to St. Paul 
where Dillinger teamed up with a man by the name of Homer Van Meter and another guy by the name of Lester Gillis, who became known better as Babyface Nelson. And he also joined Eddie Green and Tommy Carroll, among others. And the gang's business prospered as they continued robbing banks in large amounts of money in that area. So now Dillinger is up in Minnesota. So on March 30th, 1934, an agent talked to the manager of the Lincoln Court Apartments in St. Paul, and he reported that he had two suspicious tenants, a Mr. and Mrs. Hellman, who acted nervous and refused to admit the apartment caretaker into the apartment. And the FBI began a surveillance of the Hellman's apartment. And the next day, an agent and police officer knocked on the door of the apartment, and Evelyn Frischette opened the door but quickly slammed it shut. And the agents then called for reinforcements to surround the building. Now, while they were waiting, the agents saw a man enter a hall near the Hellman's apartment. And when they questioned him, the man, who was Homer Van Meter, drew a gun. And shots were exchanged during which Van Meter fled the building and forced a truck driver at gunpoint to drive him to Green's apartments. Suddenly, the door of Hellman's apartment opened, and the muzzle of a machine gun began spraying the hallway with lead. Under cover of the machine gun fire, Dillinger and Evelyn Frechette fled through a back door, and they too drove to Green's apartment, where Dillinger was treated for a wound and that he had received during his escape. And when they say Green's apartment, that was Eddie Green, one of his cohorts that he was up there in Minnesota with. Now, while this was going on, across town, one of Eddie Green's hideouts, where he had a girl by the name of Bessie Skinner living with him, and they were living as Mr. and Mrs. Stevens. On April 3rd, when the hideout of Green's was located, he attempted to draw his gun, and he was shot by the agents, and he died in a hospital eight days later. Now, Dillinger and Evelyn Frechette, they fled to Mooresville, Indiana, where they stayed with his father and half-brother until his wound had healed. And then Frechette went to Chicago to visit a friend, and she was arrested by the FBI. She was taken to St. Paul for trial on a charge of conspiracy to harbor a fugitive, and she was convicted, fined $1,000, and sentenced to two years in prison. Bessie Skinner, Eddie Green's girlfriend, got a similar sentence of 15 months on the same charges. So meanwhile, Dillinger and Van Meter got back together and they robbed a police station in Warsaw, Indiana, and they stole guns and bulletproof vests. And then after that, Dillinger was known to stay in Upper Michigan, just ahead of a posse of FBI agents that were dispatched there by airplane. So this is where it gets interesting and where there might be a slight connection with him crossing through southwest Michigan, and I'll explain that to you. He was known to be up in the Upper Peninsula area of Michigan, but before that there was instances reported where he had been in a hideout near Port Huron, and he had escaped from that, and another guy that he was staying with was arrested, but he had eluded police. But just before that, there's a story that was published in the county press, which is over in that area of the state of Michigan. And it's the story of Teresa Wolfram. And she was a young lady 
and she worked near Almont at a company called Herd Lock. Now, Almont is a small village that is west of Port Huron and a little bit to the south. It's north of Romeo and south of Imlay City, and it's off of uh, Highway 53. And so she used to walk to work, and then when she would get off work, she would walk home. And her shift usually ended in the afternoon, and then she would uh, return home and help her husband, Nicholas, with chores. And they lived on a farm, which was near the corner of Capoc and Gould Roads in the Almont area. And on one day, she was walking home, and the skies were clouding, and she had left the factory at the end of her shift, and she started walking home. And this, she knew a storm was brewing, and she kept at a pretty rapid pace. She was trying to get home before she got drenched from the clouds. And as she went faster down Almont Road, she really just didn't want to be caught in the rain. I guess you guys can imagine, you've probably been there yourself, where you're on foot and... You're trying to get ahead of a storm, even though it's kind of futile. From the distance behind her, there was a distinct sound of an approaching vehicle. And she turned around, and decades later, she would tell her descendants that this was a very beautiful car, and there was just a handsome man behind the wheel. And he had the window half rolled down, and he stopped next to her and said, Do you want a lift? And she gratefully accepted and settled herself comfortably in the front passenger seat and they were basically silent and then as he's driving down the road the man turns to her and says you know who i am do you and teresa said no she didn't and he said i'm john dillinger and her eyebrows went up and she was skeptical she wasn't ready to believe it immediately that this was america's most notorious criminal that happened to be in her rural neighborhood and had stopped to give her a ride, but she later saw his picture in the newspaper and realized it was the same man. And what had happened was when he reached the intersection of K-Pack Road, she got out of the car. He was heading north, and she had to go south, and she basically said her goodbyes, and um, she never saw him again. And a few days later, the Port Huron newspaper reported that John Dillinger had been seen in Port Huron and had escaped And that was what connected there. So for him to have gone from Indiana into Michigan up through Almont, now he could have, of course, driven through northern Indiana and come up through Ohio and then gone through Detroit on up through uh, Almont and continued on to Port Huron. But he could have also gone diagonally across the state in the rural areas trying to escape notice, which would have put him right through southwest Michigan. It's hard to know at this point, but uh, he could have come down Michigan Avenue, which was a main thoroughfare between Chicago and the eastern part of the state towards Detroit during the 1930s, because there was no interstates during that time. So Michigan Avenue was your main roadway between Chicago and Detroit, and that passed through Kalamazoo, through Battle Creek, Marshall, Jackson, and so forth. So it's very possible that he took that route. Um, or may have done so at at another given time because he was frequently around Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, and he also made his way over into Minneapolis area and St. Paul, and he was known to be in northern Michigan. So what happened after that? The, The FBI received a tip that there was a sudden influx of rather suspicious guests 
at a summer resort at a place called the Little Bohemia Lodge, which is about 50 miles north of Rhinelander, Wisconsin. And one of them sounded like the description of John Dillinger, and another sounded like the description that had been put out of Babyface Nelson. So from Rhinelander, an FBI task force set out by car for the Little Bohemia Lodge. Now this little summer resort, it was off-season for the summer resort, and it was actually early April, and it was kind of still chilly out, which made the guests arriving at a summer resort a little bit suspicious at that time of year. So the FBI had two rental cars break down en route to the Little Bohemia Lodge. And so some of the agents had to jump on the running boards of some of the other cars that they had in their little caravan and make the journey in the cold weather the rest of the way. And two miles from the resort, the car lights were turned off and the posse proceeded through the darkness. And when the cars reached the resort, dogs began barking. And the agents spread out to surround the lodge as they approached. And when they got closer, machine gun fire rattled down from the roof. And swiftly, the agents took cover. And one of them hurried to a telephone to give directions to additional agents who later arrived from Rhinelander to back up the operation. And while the agent was telephoning, the operator broke in to tell him that there was trouble in another cottage about two miles away. And a special agent, Carter Baum, another FBI man and a constable, went there and found a parked car, which the constable recognized as belonging to a local resident. And they pulled up and they identified themselves. And inside the car, they found Babyface Nelson holding three local residents at gunpoint. And he turned a leveled revolver on the lawman's car and ordered them to step out. And without waiting for them to comply, Nelson opened fire and Officer Baum was killed. And the constable and the other agent were severely wounded. Nelson jumped into the Ford that they had been using and he took off. And when the firing over at the Little Bohemia Lodge settled down, Dillinger was gone. And when the agents entered the lodge the next morning, they found only three frightened women. And Dillinger and five others had fled through a back window before the agents could surround the house. So later in July, an informant contacted the FBI that she knew of the whereabouts of John Dillinger. And she was in Chicago she was actually a madam of a brothel from Indiana, Gary, Indiana, to be exact. So she informed him that Dillinger herself and another woman by the name of Polly Hamilton were going to be going to a theater in Chicago to see Clark Gable's movie, The Manhattan Melodrama. And she didn't know which theater they were going to because it was played at two different ones, but that was what she knew. And she was uh, trying to get reward money. So ultimately, the FBI staked out both theaters, and it turned out that they, they arrived at the Biograph Theater in Chicago. And they, they waited in for them to go in, and then they weren't sure if they were going to rush into the theater. They contacted Hoover, and Hoover told them, to wait outside so they would not risk getting into a shooting match inside a crowded movie theater. So they waited until 10.30 p.m. when the movie was over, and then Dillinger and his two female companions came out of the theater, and they walked 
out the front door and they turned left. And as they walked past the door, there was a FBI agent undercover standing there and his signal was to light a cigar, which would indicate that it was time for the men to close in and arrest Dillinger. So Dillinger quickly realized what was happening and he acted on instinct and he grabbed a pistol from his right trouser pocket and he ran toward the alley. And they followed him and they fired five shots from three different FBI agents at him and three of the bullets hit Dillinger and he fell face down on the pavement. And at about 10.50 p.m. on July 22, 1934, Dillinger was pronounced dead in a little room at Alexian Brothers Hospital. And that was the end of John Dillinger in that saga. And one other interesting tidbit about the story of John Dillinger and its connection to Southwest Michigan was that in October 1933, there was a conference held at the state police in Lansing, Michigan, concerning John Dillinger and the FBI converged there at that state police conference where they discussed the murder of the Lima, Ohio sheriff with the Michigan State Police there and basically briefing them on the John Dillinger uh, escapee situation. So the Michigan State Police were also on high alert for John Dillinger, as were Indiana and Ohio, and later Wisconsin and Minnesota. So Dillinger had made his way around this part of the country and uh, this part of the Midwest. And of course, he went on down to Florida and Arizona. There's also references to him having been in Kansas. And some of his uh, gang members served time at the prison in uh, Kansas over there. So that is the story of John Dillinger. There is just a very slight connection to Southwest Michigan, but I thought I'd tell you the story. I had a lot of people that were interested in the episode that I did on Al Capone last year, and that was one of the highest listened to episodes that I had done on this channel. So I thought I would uh, explore to see if John Dillinger had ever come through. And I thought it was kind of interesting that that lady reported that she got a ride from John Dillinger on that stormy day to avoid rain um, when he was on his way to Port Huron. So it's an interesting connection to Michigan in that personal anecdote. He was also known to have been in hideouts up in the UP area. And that's probably how he made his way over to Wisconsin. So my guess is he probably traveled the length of the UP and came down to those lodges in Wisconsin following that incident in Port Huron. But that's going to conclude today's journey through history. If you like today's episode, please be sure to leave a rating or a review on whatever app that you are listening on. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can always find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening. <laughs>